Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization project's audio recording, where I speak on a on a weekly basis with scholars working on the contemporary Middle East and some of the themes that, that really shape the, the project's goals. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Stacey Strobel, Associate Professor in the Department of Criminal Justice at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. Stacey has written a range of, of books and articles on, on a number of really really interesting and novel aspects of, of sectarian politics with a particular focus on Bahrain and and policing in Bahrain. And it's really fascinating to, to get to talk to Stacey about her approach. So Stacey, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. I'm delighted. It's it's an absolute pleasure. I've really loved reading your, your recent book, Sectarian Order in Bahrain, The Social and Colonial Origins of Criminal Justice. I think it's it's absolutely fascinating and looks at these questions of sectarianism and, and the political, social, legal aspects in a completely different way to, to what I, as, as a scholar of politics and international relations, am I'm accustomed to, so it's really refreshing to see you doing this. But could you um, could you start by telling us a little bit about what got you interested in in these questions about about sectarianism and criminal justice and Bahrain more broadly, please? Yes. Um, well, so I, I had the great fortune of being a Fulbright scholar there um, in 2014-2015, and um, I had a bit of a background in Middle Eastern studies, but didn't really know the Arabian Gulf before roughly that period. Right. Um, in 2005, 2000, 2000, I'm sorry, 2004 and 2005 was when I was in um, the Fulbright. And so I, um, you know, went to sort of put together two strands of, of interest I had. So criminal justice, police studies, and some Middle Eastern studies, again, not necessarily Gulf specific. Um, and my experience was really interesting um, in the sense that I read really widely in both discourses and really couldn't at that time, so we're going back 10, 12 years, really felt like it wasn't a complete narrative in this in the sense that there were a lot of strands that weren't being brought together. Um, sure. And so part of um, what I've been doing since that that period is being a little bit of a magpie and sort of trying to bring together stuff from anthropology, history, international relations, criminal justice, um, put a little bit more of a critical theory um, on the situation, because I think that some of the existing paradigms, um, again, and this is just a generalization, there's a lot of good work out there, but I, I became concerned that um, the that the sort of um, identity issues going on in Bahrain uh, were rightly being seen as a political problem, but their origins, their root causes, sort of the social, cultural um, underpinnings of that were just under-interrogated. And so sure. um, I began to look at that through the archival record um, and sort of through the colonial experience. So the book Sectarian Order in Bahrain is really focused on the historical period um, when the British were involved um, in administering the country in the uh, 1920s through 1940 um, in order to set up sort of a longer approach to the Shia problem, if you will, um, and rather than sort of uh, setting the, the point of inquiry like many um, scholars have done sort of around the Iranian Revolution. I'm going back much further to show how um, this um, rift in Bahraini society um, is is something that had been created um, and maintained uh, much earlier. 
um, and that it is is far more than a political problem, which makes it a thornier issue. Yeah, it, it certainly does. And I think you, you do that incredibly well. You paint a, an incredibly depressing but holistic picture of, of this crisis, which which kind of makes it even more problematic in terms of, of the the depth of it, the depth of the problems, the depth of the, the issues. But just before we go on to, to looking at, at the book in more detail, could you tell us a little bit about your your own sort of intellectual background then? You you, you touched on this this focus on on um, anthropology and criminology with a bit of Middle Eastern study. So so what was your bachelor and your master's yeah, and your PhD? So I have a very strange background or unique Fantastic. Um, in that my bachelor's degree was in Middle Eastern studies at okay. Cornell University. So um, I was very well versed there in Arabic language, some of the classical um, Quranic studies right. um, and that kind of thing. But then I put that down um, and and became a journalist and ended up as a crime reporter and um, ended up in the field of criminal justice. Um, and so as a graduate student, was really involved in sort of the, the sort of mainstream um, criminal justice theorizing and uh, research methodology and so on. And so it wasn't until later when I, I was working on my, or looking to work on my dissertation, that I sort of had this moment of these two worlds can come together in a really um, interesting way, because there just isn't a lot of criminal justice scholars who are working in the Arabian Gulf region um, or in the Middle East. Um, yet there's a, a lot of of work that can be done to sort of try to understand um, the region that way. Um, and so I think what's what's um, interesting about using criminal justice as well as a lens on um, what might be going on in Bahrain is it's a slightly different way of looking at the country than a lot of um, political scientists and others have, have looked at it. So sure. um, it ended up being more political than I even imagined. I mean, part of what I'm interested in or was interested in early on was um, everyday policing in Bahrain um, in the sense that a lot of people who do look at security issues and public safety issues in the country, they tend to focus on things that have geopolitical significance really, really obviously, like terrorism, um, and, and political unrest. And I actually was looking a bit for everyday um, sort of issues, you know, everyday violence. Yeah. Um, but what I found along the way was it isn't separate from issues of sectarian identity, gender. Right. Um, you really can't depoliticize even some of the more seemingly mundane things that are going on. Sure. And that was definitely true in the archival colonial record. Um, I actually, you know, ended up in a very, very political space um, looking at the cases during the time period of interest, uh, 1920s, 1940, uh, way more political ramification than I could have ever imagined. Right. Which was yeah. both exciting and, again, like I was saying, made me realize that the issue of sectarian identity and justice and social justice are a lot more problematic than I think have uh, been put forth in other scholarship. Sure. I would imagine that, that most of our listeners are, are probably located within politics, Middle Eastern studies and, and political science backgrounds. So could you just tell us a little bit about, about what you think criminal justice brings to the table in terms of interrogating Bahrain and, and other such issues, please? Yeah, I think what 
that what was really helpful from that end was critical criminology, which is um, a way of looking at the world that uh, has a social justice focus that is a critique of globalization um, and capitalism, global capitalism, that looks at issues of identity and economic inequality to then say that that has an impact on the administration of justice or the imagination of justice. Um, and so that was really, really helpful in the sense that I think um, it made, it gave an entree to look at um, criminal justice cases, historical cases in a way that was critical and had sort of social and political ramifications. Um, so I think that that's where criminal justice really matters. And also that, every, again, that everyday decisions about public safety that may seem local or national um, actually are sites with where larger geopolitical struggles are actually sort of being played out. Um, and in that sense, that's, you know, sort of that Foucaultian sort of governmentality sort of micro yeah. setting and how it relates to sort of macro discourse and trends was really um, also a part of that. That's that's really, really interesting. And I can certainly see how how these types of, of backgrounds would help. Just uh, quickly, who, what sort of, uh, sorry, which, which sort of scholars would you suggest people should look at if they wanted to, to get more of a handle on, on critical criminology and critical criminal justice? Yeah, um, I think... What I would do in that case is look at a, an, another sort of frame within that, which is um, Southern criminology. Um, and so a person who comes to mind is Carrie Carrington of um, Queensland University in Australia, who has really been a, a vanguard in picking that up. And that takes critical criminology and says, uh, we need to begin to, as criminologists, apply that to non-Western spaces. Um, and so they've sort of touched on Southern. And so what that does is for criminology, it brings in the post-colonial discourse. So I think in a lot of other, so this is sort of the critique of my discipline, criminal justice, I think a lot of other fields have done a better job of taking post-colonial theory and, and bringing that to their disciplines. And criminal justice is an incredibly conservative discipline in the sense that it has been uh, under uh under uh, people by folks that are taking a critical lens. So right. it's a relatively new discipline in the sense that it doesn't really come about until um, at least in the U.S. in the 1960s. Um, and it's borrowing, right? It's it's stealing from sociology. It steals from socio uh, anthropology, political science, steals from other places. <laughs> but it was a lot of folks that had the experience of working in a criminal justice system in the West. Um, and so I think that that can be both a strength and a weakness. And in the case of theoretical development of, the, of our discipline, it's been a little bit of a weakness because folks sometimes um, are less likely to be critical when they've had a certain kind of investment in a in an institution and in a, in a status quo within their national contexts. They also don't necessarily have the cultural capital to go into spaces that aren't that are very different. Um, and so what I also noticed in working and traveling and researching in the Arabian Gulf was the omnipresence of uh, Western consultants and security yeah. um, in security uh, initiatives. Um, and, and so they bring a ton of technical expertise. Um, they certainly ha are well-intentioned and open-minded, but they often miss the mark because they have absolutely no idea about the sort of lived experience of the people that they're working with, whether on the police side or even 
sort of the lived experience even, you know, deeper of the people that they're consulting with are going to police. And so you get these layers of misunderstanding and out of context solutions. Um, And so that, that to me is um, something that my field needs to sort of weigh more heavily on and say, look, it isn't acceptable. Uh, There's a moral problem with going into a space and making decisions that are um, involving the use of lethal force or helping, you know, we have to be really careful about the technical uh, expertise that we share um, if it's too extracted from, from other sort of more human, uh, you know, notions of appropriateness culturally, um, and sure. so on. So it's it's very very complicated, as I know you know. It, it is, and it's it's absolutely fascinating. I've done some work on sort of the the application of some of the the concepts in in politics and political science in the the non Western world, and I think it's incredibly important and raises all types of issues that that we all need to be more aware of. So I think it's really important what you're doing. With, when you're you're talking about these these experiences and these new spaces, I couldn't help but think that as you were reflecting on the the role of security consultants in in what I assume to be the present and recent past, that you could just as easily have been talking about the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Is that a fair assessment? Do you think from your archival work? Yeah, it is a fair assessment, and um, you know the figure of Sir Charles Belgrave looms really large in Bahrain. He was the um, consultant to um, the emirs during the time period of, of interest, and really famously uh, developed the country. And so, one of the phrases in the book—I'm paraphrasing myself now—and um, something that sort of hit me was, "We now have an army of Belgraves uh, going out." Right? It was one gentleman. Right. Um, in the colonial period, um, but now it's it's many many people doing you know more specific things. I I, I sort of um, was really fascinated with Bahrain as well because and this is going to be a little bit controversial, but I, I'm sticking That's to absolutely it. Fine. I, it was a colony. Um, it yeah. wasn't called that, and I'm often critiqued by um, you know in peer review for calling. Bahrain's history of colonial experience because officially on the books it was a mere protectorate and it was involved in, you know, it had a security treaty. Um, it had a security treaty and not necessarily a, a colony in the sense of, you know, India or. Yeah. But actually, um, I think what's really important, I'm going to do a shout out to historian James Only at the University of Exeter. He does an <laughs> excellent job in his work of saying. Duly noted. Um, it was a part of the Raj. And administratively, by the time you get to the 1920s, yeah, it is it is not dissimilar from the many many British colonies in the kind of control that London and Delhi um, had on on the administration of everyday life. So, um, I think that's another important piece. Sure, and even sort of reflecting on on the influence of of Delhi, albeit heavily populated by by people from from London and from the UK that still is a completely different context to the case of Bahrain at that time yes so, yes that's absolutely right and yet so when you look at Belgrave and other um, westerners who were working to develop um, Bahrain at the time um, you know they were 
educated um, in the UK, um, often were a part of the colonial service um, in other spaces before they came to Bahrain. And, you know, there was this sort of um, way of coming in and restructuring a country um, that they had um, an, an expertise in. I, I draw a lot um, of inspiration from George Steinmetz's work on German colonialism, and he really talks about sort of the... Um, the kind of sagacity that sort of gets um, sort of diffused in a lot of different spaces. That's really um, there is an understanding that that the um, job is to make it fit a local context, but that there is also a lot of ways of doing that that um, can be can can go back to sort of the more of the culture of the metropole than the culture of the yeah. uh, place that it's being imposed upon. And so some of that work has been really helpful too. Yeah, I, I can imagine. It sounds really, really interesting and really, really important. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the thrust of the argument then? So we know the context within which you're looking at. We know that you're you're doing a lot of archival work to understand the processes, but the, what, what are the main arguments that you're putting forward in the book for anyone who's who's not read the book yet and I strongly urge you to if you've not done it already I think my main argument um, in particular looking at criminal justice but I think it would hold true to other institutions is that you have to take a longer historical approach to understand the root causes and that the historical narrative has been heavily sanitized um, by the current royal family and so sort of the true um interaction between Sunni and Shia and other groups in the country, we're actually operating in in such a mythology that it makes um, the present a a little bit obscure or uh, obfuscated in terms of maybe how to look at contemporary issues. So my main argument is that there are two historical disruptions um, that are useful for looking at sectarianism. The first is the entrance of the Khalifa family um, into the region from the Saudi interior. It wasn't Saudi then, um, in the late 1700s. And then the second disruption is the imposition of um, colonial administration um, in the early 20th century. And in both of those frames, the the indigenous culture of the Indian Ocean trading communities and the sort of Shia tolerance that was and Shia uh, presence that was in the space originally as a sort of indigenous way of being was completely disrupted twice over with two layers. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in the 20th century, you bring in what what would be the sort of origins of, of modern day policing, uniformed police services, um, you know, uh, courts of justice that are something that would be recognizable in the West. Um, but there was um, something that existed before that um, for um, the different communities in terms of seeking justice. And so you actually already, I guess what I'm trying to say is you already had a criminal justice conflict between Sunni tribal uh, modes of justice and Indian Ocean people's um, modes of justice that was already unresolved and even violent. Um, and then you have the overlay of the British doing something even even more um, complicated in many ways. So you have this sort of third influence. Um, the Al Khalifa um, really did a great job of using um, and sort of the British um, colonial experience to their advantage in, in putting down other, other groups. And so you really can't understand 
sort of the Al Khalifa British um, alliance without understanding that from the from the beginning it was a it, it involved the subjugation almost by definition of local Shia populations. And you can't divorce the two. Um, and I don't think it's it was the intention of the colonial administrators. I think they don't to necessarily oppress um, Shia directly. I think they they ought, many of them individually had great compassion for the situation. But geopolitically it never made sense because um, the Al Khalifa were sort of the the strongest um, family in the region um, and had done such a good job of maintaining control of the island um, and enslaving some local populations and and um, and using violence um, against local populations that if you from the British point of view wanted to create regional uh, regional peace for trade and later oil um, you're gonna go with al Khalifa that that is a recognizable power that you can uh, negotiate with um, because the local population was already so bedraggled um, yeah. They weren't really able to uh, to get their interests uh, well heard. Now that being said, um, those groups never stopped um, trying to um, create a, a, a Bahrain for everyone. Um, and so there's a number of um, groups, um, if you know the history, that have been along the way really trying to uh, make their mark, whether in the mind of the Al Khalifa or in the mind of um, the colonial administrators. Unfortunately, it's never resolved. And so my point is now, even before we get to something like the Iranian revolution in the modern state, I mean, this was, this was never... Uh, we we didn't Bahrain as an independent country never started out as many colonial countries did not you know with any kind of sense of community beyond uh, supporting the the royal family and its and its tribal affiliations um, and that, and I you know in the book come out and say and I don't mean this to be aggressive against the state but it really is operating more like a tribe um, it's really taken national language of national inclusivity but it's actually operating as a Sunni hegemonic inclusivity. And so what I think is really interesting, I've looked at the discourse in some of the PR police magazines like Al Amin, uh, and they are very clear that that citizens will, you know, deserve their, their due rights and respects when they're working for the whole nation and they're working together. Um, and I think it's a gloss for being pro-Sunni and the pro-Sunni state. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's just a real disconnect to expect somebody whose family has been economically disenfranchised, perhaps enslaved in past generations, um, perhaps, you know, uh, under security scrutiny that is um, really oppressive, uh, to feel a part of that and then to want to conform to some kind of um, sense of inclusivity. They, they don't have that sense of inclusivity. They've never been welcomed into it to begin with, going back generations, uh, not to mention a lot of the citizenship issues around the, the Badoon or those that don't have citizenship because they failed to uh, register properly with the colonial state yeah. in, the, in the beginning. So there's a number of problems around that. And so um, again, I think the main apologies for this being a little bit rambling, but I think the main thrust of the all. book is let's take another look at what this problem is before we are so quick to add solutions because um, it's not what it appears discursively. 
And I think that that really comes out very, very well in the book. One of the things that I enjoy uh, that, I, that I think is a real strength of it is that whilst you're ostensibly located within a particular discipline, this book has has a, a real sort of historical dimension. It's got very clear legal components. It's got clear contributions for, for politics, Middle Eastern studies, for, for critical theory. And I think it's absolutely wonderful in that regard that it, it poses so many questions raises so many so many more questions about the study of Bahrain and and how this type of approach can facilitate a greater understanding of, of contemporary dynamics but that being said I wonder what do you think what do you think your your approach tells us about contemporary politics in Bahrain well um, and this is where uh, I'm really excited for your center um, doing the work that it's doing. Um, you really do need an active policy of desectarianization to sort of fix this. Um, a lot of what goes on in terms of, uh, and again, it's complicated because of the geopolitical situation and the kinds of Western allies, but there is really no, on the part of the um, the the Sunni royal family. There's no sense of owning this history um, of violent oppression of the local people. Um, and there's there's really no reckoning. There's no sort of public narrative around it. Um, and I think without going through that sort of process, whether it's a truth and reconciliation process like you might have seen in Tunisia or Morocco, yeah. um, if you don't do that really difficult work socially and politically, you cannot solve this problem. Um, and I think that that's something that's really, really hard for even scholars to think about um, because it's so impractical. Um, and a lot of, um, you know, I, a lot of times when I'm talking to other scholars uh, about Bahrain, um, you know, my imagination of the solution is often, um, I think, a little bit out there in the sense that it seems pretty, you know, pie in the sky to think that, you know, the king would offer an apology for something that might have happened in the past or acknowledge um, a significantly segregated underclass of mostly Shia Bahrainis. Um, that would be really really um, unlikely in the current environment. Um, but I would encourage everyone to keep, keep imagining um, a comprehensive solution um, to, to this problem, to this social and political problem. If we don't keep imagining that, we're letting that regime off the hook for a lot of really, really significant human rights abuses. Um, and so that that is what I'm trying to sort of keep, keep scholars in that frame. Um, because a lot of, and again, I, um, I have a lot of respect for political science and international relations, but I'm also a little bit depressed by some of the discourse because I feel like sometimes scholars in that realm are busy sort of trying to like play a chess game and try to call and predict, you know, the next move. Um, and it, it's, it can lose its moral center. It can lose sure, its yeah. recognition of the lived experience of people. It can lose its recognition that there's nothing even close to um, democracy going on in, in this space. And yet um, the country has the full support of the UK and the US. And by full support, that includes arms deals <clears throat> and all sorts of, um, you know, assistance that that perpetuates this um, severe crisis of human rights. So um, I really, really urge scholars to use their critical lens where, from whatever discipline they are, if they're looking at, at, at Bahrain, and to keep, keep the imagination on something that, that has social justice um, that 
um, recognizes the history, the violent history of the country, that recognizes that the way forward is something that is safe for everybody, regardless of their sectarian identity, their ethnic identity, the, their their native language, their citizenship. Um, uh, and, and, you know, you see that the state <clears throat> is actually actively removing citizenship um, in processes of punishment for participation in the Bahrain Spring. So, um, yes, it's it's a very thorny issue and it's really, really bad, but we can't stop imagining, you know, everything good that we would want in a Western country in terms of human rights protections. We have to imagine and want that for other spaces as well, including I think that's incredibly well put and I think it's incredibly powerful what you've just said over the past minute or two. Um, it's it's a really powerful call for, for scholars in all disciplines to, to carefully reflect on their own position and I wholeheartedly endorse everything that you've just said. But Stacey, I'm conscious we've taken up a great deal of your time, so I, I want to wrap this up and just say thank you so much for for giving us your time and for, for talking through the, the book, which is absolutely wonderful. It's available from, from all good bookshops and others that might be online as well, and I, I urge everyone to, to pick up a copy and to read it. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned, not only for Bahrain, but for, for other types of divided societies. So Stacey, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks, Stacey. And until the next time, goodbye.